0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy, I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. This week, we are inserting an episode out of chronological order. That's a first for us on the podcast. Um, Our essential text this week is The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was written in the first centuries of the Common Era, meaning after Jesus Christ. And so it belongs earlier on our reading list, right after our discussion of the Virgin Mary. After I recorded that episode on the Virgin Mary and early Christianity, I realized that we had missed some important. Parts of the historical story, and I heard back from some readers, who or some listeners rather, that that said, "Well, Amy, you said there isn't really um, a book of Mary, so we don't know what Mary said or thought. But what about the the Gospel of Mary Magdalene?" And so that was such an important piece that I had left out, and so I was thinking about how to incorporate that, and thought maybe I would do an addendum to that episode, but. When I found the most incredible reading partner to read this text with me, I knew we had to do it right now, even though it's out of order, and we just we'll just stick it in. So um, next week we'll resume with the 19th century texts where we were, but for today we're going to get our heads back into the various accounts of what happened during the life of Jesus Christ, and we'll consider how it would feel to have a record that we knew was written by or about a woman and we're also going to talk about who determined which accounts made it into the bible that people read today and here's a hint it was not women making those decisions surprise (laughs) surprise (laughs) so with all that as our introduction to guide us on that journey today i am just thrilled to welcome the scholar musician composer and poet and renaissance woman dr kayleen asbo welcome kayleen Oh,
1: thank you, Amy. It's such a pleasure to be with you on this such an important topic. I'm
0: I'm so excited. I remember, Kayleen, the first time I met you was at Stanford. I hadn't started my Mm. master's program yet, but I was taking that continuing studies course from Professor Bruce Elliott, whom I adore. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you gave a lecture on um, classical music in the Catholic tradition as compared to the Protestant tradition. And I was just so blown away by you that I signed up for your email list. And I do not sign up for email lists, I do not like getting things in my inbox, but I read it every week. I feel like it's the most nourishing thing I read during my week. And I've watched your lectures. I attended a retreat with my daughters that we were just talking about. And I'm just so grateful for your work. And I wonder if you could just start us out today by telling us a little bit about yourself personally, where you're from and your education and your passions, and Mm -hmm. just kind of your perspective that you bring to the text.
1: Oh, sure. You know, I actually think that the place I have to begin is actually before I was born because my parents met each other as students in a class on comparative religion. And they were the only two non-Mormons at the University of Utah in this particular class. And my father was debating on one side of issues. Uh, He he, um, was a very eclectic spiritual seeker. I think that's a generous way to put it. Uh, Everything from Native American shamanism to different world cultures. Um, My mother was a very, at the time, a very um, sort of proper Presbyterian. And (laughs) so I like to say that they came from opposite sides, but they were both on their own spiritual quest. And ultimately, neither one of them found the kind of nourishment that they were hungry for within any kind of institutional religion. And they divorced (laughs) by the time I was two. Um, But I like to think that in in the mythic story of my life, a lot of what my life has been dedicated to is trying to find the bridge the the tent that's large enough that could nourish enough people that no matter where you come from you could find something that would speak and nourish your soul and so part of that mm. story for me is in a very mythic way their custody arrangement when i was two was that my mother had me for 9 months of the year and my father for 3 and the place mm. that they overlapped what, where they traded custody was at art museums and at mm. Disneyland. So I like to say I it was sort of preordained that I would become a cultural historian and mythologist mm. who really turned to the arts as a pathway of unity and healing and mm. um, and therapy. So my first love was classical music, and I was uh, on track to become a concert pianist and soloed with my first orchestra when I was 12, or at least an aspiring concert pianist, I should say. Um, Hmm. But by the age of 18, I had a devastating injury, and I was told I'd never play piano again. So I had to find something else to live for. So I turned to study the psychology of Carl Jung and at smith college i where i uh, eventually went to school for a while i studied women's history and poetry and i sought out the thing the other things that had nourished me in my youth and i now look back on that and feel like it's a great blessing because one of the things i'm convinced about for the journey of the heroine as opposed to the hero is that the heroine's quest is really all about not dividing and dismembering things and cutting up ourselves in little pieces, but of gathering all the different pieces of who we are and weaving them together in our own unique way to express our individuality and to live out the fullness of who we are. And I think one of the differences between the sort of patriarchal structure is that it wants you to narrow and confine yourself I almost went and did a PhD program in spirituality at the Graduate Theological Union. Um, but at my interview there, they said, we want you to be one inch wide and a mile deep. And so oh. you can't include everything oh. that you want to study. You have to narrow it and narrow it and narrow it. And I thought there was some part of my soul that revolted against that. And I said, you know, like, no, I, I need to have music. I need to have art. I need to have all of mm. these things, because they're all an expression. So I ended up doing my PhD in mythological studies at the Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara instead, where I wrote my dissertation on Mary Magdalene in myth, art, and culture. Because I think that oh. it's not just the text that we can turn to for insight and wisdom and revelation. It is also what are the images that have come forth? What are what are the sounds that have come forth in music? And I think we're going to be weaving that together today in our discussion of the gospel of Mary.
0: That's just gorgeous. That introduction, Kayleen, it actually, your, your studies and your insistence on incorporating, um, multifaceted and, um, Inter interdisciplinary work in your PhD and in your studies reminds me of a word that's going to come up in the text, which is anthropos, which is yes. it, in my understanding, and, and you'll, I'm sure expound upon this better than I could, but my understanding of that word means to be more fully human. And, and so I think of the humanities yes. and all of the arts yes. that to be fully human, we need all of those disciplines informing how we see things, or we can become just part of, of ourselves and, and, and our vision can be distorted if it's too narrow. So that's just. Absolutely. You...
1: And we'll, we'll literally miss the point of so much, you know, I've just finished teaching a course on T.S. Eliot's four quartets. And while I fell in love with them when I was a 16 year old. It took me years before, like, I would not understand them in their fullness without knowing Mm. the late quartets of Beethoven, which they're based on, without also knowing the history of Christian mysticism and also the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana, because those are all parts of it as well. And so if you don't have that perspective where you're gathering them together, you will so much miss the conversation that is happening across disciplines and across the centuries and those the most gratifying ahas, the, those moments of profound epiphany will completely bypass you.
2: Mm,
1: yeah. So I'm a passionate advocate for the integration of all of the arts. And mm. you're absolutely right. Even that word anthropos, which is at the root of anthropology, has mm-hmm. been woefully mistranslated in, in some translations to mean, um, I will make Mary male. But really, that word would have been andros. It's I will make her fully human. And I just want to put out there for all of you who are listening, what would that mean for you? What would that mean for you to flower in your fullness of your full humanity? What would that mean for our world to be flowering in the fullness of our humanity? And Mm -hmm. that, as we're going to see, is I think really a central, central message of both the gospel of Mary and of some of the other early texts that were cut out and dismembered from the story beginning in the fourth century of Christianity.
0: Oh, thank you, Kayleen. That was just an absolutely beautiful introduction. Um, I want to ask you really quickly, because I know how much I've benefited from the work that you're doing right now. Could you tell us just a little bit um, about the work you're doing personally and Mm -hmm. the Mythica Foundation
1: and and any Mm -hmm. offerings that are coming up so that our listeners can check them out? Absolutely. Um, Mythica is a company that I created. Again, it was out of frustration that I was an adjunct professor at a number of different colleges. And I felt like I had to be too narrow. You know, in one place I would teach music, in one place I might teach art history, in another I would teach psychology or women's studies. But I wanted to bring them all together because I feel like they're all doorways into wisdom, into self-knowledge and into healing ultimately. So I began my own company a few years ago and Mythica is dedicated to bringing together the wisdom traditions, contemplation and the arts and ultimately in the service of creating community. So before COVID, we would... uh, Take people on sacred journeys to Europe um, every year to sites associated with Mary Magdalene, but also to Scotland and to England and to Italy. Um, and then uh, we partner with a number of different organizations um, to bring together and create programs about history, particularly cultural history that includes women's history. And so The strange gift of the COVID times is that almost for the past year now, I've been offering these online. And for 2021, there's a few things that I really focus on. So once a month, I do a virtual pilgrimage that's in the footsteps of the mystics and they range uh, their three-day programs of art, music, history, story, contemplation, and practices inspired by both Jungian depth psychology and also by the ancient contemplative traditions. And I have a marvelous faculty I've gathered from all over the world to join me to create these offerings. And, um, then the next ones coming up are going to be mystical scotland and then we'll go to Glastonbury england and then on the camino santiago in Compostela and the pyrenees and and eventually to lourdes and then in the fall to, with uh, saint francis and saint claire in italy so there's one every month so those are the virtual pilgrimages and then once a month, they also have a heroine's path workshop that looks at the, the great world mythologies. And we incorporate again practices of making art and writing practices and poetry and dramatization and, and ritual to bring alive, um, these ancient mythologies of strong, powerful female figures. So, um, I began with Ariadne and the Labyrinth, and there will be a whole host of those, again, on an ongoing basis. And then there are the the cultural history programs that I just really love and cherish that sometimes highlight a particular saint, like one of my favorites, Julian of Norwich on her feast day. And then quarterly, there are also a 22-day online program that if you're interested in what we're talking about today is really designed as an ideal place to dive in deeply. It's based on my dissertation, but I wanted my, my work that I did for my doctoral work to be easily accessible, and personally relevant to the reader. So it's 22 days where there's a a part of the story from the biblical Mary Magdalene to the Nag Hammadi Mary Mary Magdalene to what happened to her over time in history. And also it's infused with every day there are art images across the centuries. There are links to music that has been composed for her. And there are questions for journaling, for your own personal connection and inner insight. And all of that can be found on my website of www.kaileneasbo.com.
0: Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait to check out more of those things. As I said before, anything I've ever done that you've produced has been just fantastic. And so um, it's just so thrilled
1: that, that
0: those offerings are out there. Yeah,
1: it's true. You know, I should also, also say that one of the great, great, elements about COVID right now is, is that partnership is possible all around the world. So mm. I've been partnering with wonderful organizations that I love, 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 love all over the world from St. Stephen's Episcopal Cathedral in Richmond, Virginia, um, where I'm currently doing a, a Lenten series called Anchored in the Heart and to the Salome Institute of Union Studies in Portland, Oregon. And um, I'm doing monthly um, monthly broadcasts on the Nada Library and Early Christianity, that you can also discover if you want to dive more deeply into some of the material we're going to touch in on next.
0: Fantastic! That's that's so great. Thanks, Kayleen. I'm wondering if to start us out, you could just introduce the text a little bit and tell us where the, where the Gospel of Mary Magdalene came from. I'm guessing that. Um, For a lot of our listeners, I mean, everyone will know who Mary Magdalene is, but may not have heard of the book of Mary Magdalene or the gospel of Mary Magdalene. So can you just kind of acquaint us with that text?
1: Absolutely. Um, And and I do want to just drop in one thing before I introduce the text though, because while most people have heard of Mary Magdalene, there's still incredible confusion about who she is. And Mm -hmm. I still to this day encounter people who say, wait, wasn't she a prostitute? So Mm -hmm. I just want to say that It's really important to lay the groundwork that the biblical Mary Magdalene and the gospel of Mary Magdalene are very, very congruent in the sense that the biblical Mary Magdalene, the woman, if you look at the canonical text there, is the faithful witness to the crucifixion and she is the first witness to the resurrection. So the word I would use for her is disciple. And the Gospel Mm -hmm. of Mary, although it's in fragments and it's dismembered, is a, a telling of many of the events that are congruent with what we have in the New Testament. Essentially, there is an appearance by Jesus and he um, he disappears, he leaves, the disciples are in fear, as we find, for example, in the book of Acts, where they're hiding in the upstairs room, and they turn to Mary in their fear and their confusion, and they ask her, and they say, please, Mary, tell us the words and the teachings that you know that we don't, because we know that the teacher gave you private teachings." And so she then recounts uh, a visionary experience that she had in which Jesus came to her and gave her this profound vision. And that is the the text of the Gospel of Mary in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Now, um, it came as a surprise when this was recovered at the very end of the 19th century. There are three extant copies of it, although There is not currently one in its wholeness. Um, There are three copies. They date, um, the copies date um, when you do the the carbon dating from the third century to the fifth century. And they're in two different languages. They are in Coptic and they're in Greek. And in a nutshell, what that means is that we can surmise that it was a widely disseminated text for several years several hundred years. If you think about what's involved in taking and transcribing and translating and writing texts on papyrus, um, it's a very laborious, time-consuming project that required great skill. And so these weren't things that were done casually, casually. It it indicates that this was a text of deep importance, enough that it persisted and was recopied over several hundred years and translated into multiple languages. Hmm. Now, what we have are fragments because when the original document, there was one that was um, whole, um, and it was sold. It was uh, was was bought actually, and uh, bought by a German scholar. But it, it wasn't deemed to be critically important for a really long time. And it languished in basically a faculty office where there were burst pipes and World War One happened. And it wasn't until after World War II and the finding of the Nag Hammadi texts where Mary Magdalene appears in many of those other gospels and other texts as as a disciple of of not just some importance, but some would argue the most important disciple, that that people began to say, Hey, wait a minute, you know, these other things that we have, these other texts that we have, we should take a look at those and translate those and study those more deeply. So the fragments that we have from what's known as the Rinkus manuscript, and then the one that was originally a whole but but is in fragments now and parts of it are missing, they were all compared and Karen King has done a wonderful sort of side-by-side comparison of all three of them. Um, and there's a lot of consistency, even though we have these fragments, and even though what we have is not a full manuscript, what we do have. Has been called by Hal Tausig and the New Orleans Council of Scholars when they came together the single most important recovered document of our times, even though it's in fragments. Because what it gives us is a perspective on early Christianity that is radically causing a rethinking of our assumptions. And it just it just points with sort of laser-sharp precision into the the difference between what we assumed early Christianity was for hundreds of years and what is now coming to light. And and that has, is so exciting. And it's so exciting, particularly for women and the light that it sheds on women's history. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I, um,
0: we, You and I were talking a little bit earlier about um, the Nag Hammadi text and uh, because you mentioned it just now, I wondered if you could just really quickly explain what that was. Nag Hammadi, I think, is uh, it's a place in Egypt, right? Where this that's different right. um, papyrus book, and that's what a codex is, right? I, I almost want to provide
1: like a glossary yeah. of terms, right? <laughs> sure. A codex is Thank a book. Thank you for doing that. Papyrus, that's so important. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So a codex is a collection of multiple books. Okay. And what we have uh, in Nag Hammadi, it was in nineteen in December of 1945, um, some Bedouin sheep herders went and they actually found, uh, as they were searching for fuel, they found this gigantic earthenware jar. And inside of it was a collection of books, of ancient papyri uh, books. Um that was really a treasure trove. And unfortunately, some of those books were destroyed. They were actually used as kindling for a fire. But what we have- I read um, that. that I like, <laughs> <laughs> it's heart stopping. Like almost um, cried. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, what we have that survives is 52 books. And these 52 books include a wide variety of literature. It includes some gorgeous poems that are called the Odes of Solomon. And it includes actually, it includes a Platonic text, um, but it also includes several so-called gospels, including the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip. And what these are is these are stories that were used by early Christian communities about the teachings of Jesus that didn't make it into the final cut of the Bible. And essentially mm-hmm. what, what you can think of about biblical history is that in the first, especially in the first few centuries when Christianity was an outlawed religion, we didn't have a definitive text what we had were small communities, many who gathered in people's homes and other communities that would gather, for example, in the catacombs of Priscilla in in Rome, in these underground caverns um, in places. And the communities that would gather then would share an oral tradition of the teachings of their rabbi, of Jesus. And it wasn't until generations later that any of these texts were written down. For example, uh, biblical scholars will say that most likely the earliest text that we have in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, was probably written down in the year 70. And Hmm. then Gospel of John, Gospel of Luke, there's a lot of dissension, but one common dating is somewhere between 100 and, and 110, for example, for those. So if you think that that's multiple generations later before mm. the oral mm-hmm. tradition becomes written down. Um, so we we at one point probably had hundreds of different texts that were the written form of the oral teachings that had been widely disseminated. You know, after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, um, we're told that the disciples scattered and they went in different directions. So there's a common tradition, for instance, that the, the disciple Philip went to Syria, that the disciple Thomas went to India, that Peter went to Rome, and that the disciples spread out and they took what they remembered of the teachings of their master and they shared them with the communities that they went to. And it wasn't until um, after the um, conversion of the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century, where Christianity stops becoming a persecuted underground religion and becomes an accepted religion and then eventually becomes the official state religion of the Roman Empire, that it then became uh, sent out. I think if the year was three hundred and seventy-six, but it was definitely fourth century. Mm-hmm. That a list got sent out by uh, Bishop Athanasius, and he sent on a list, and he said, "Here are the books that are the authorized teachings by the Roman Empire." And if the implication was, if you have other stories about the teachings of Jesus. These are no longer acceptable. And it Mm. was kind of implied that you should destroy them. Mm. So where Nag Hammadi was discovered is about three miles away from uh, one of the largest monasteries in the world, one of the first monasteries. It was a monastery founded by St. Pacomius and uh, collected together the wisdom of the ancient um tradition and egypt was one of those great centers of christianity um side note that after the destruction of the temple and the diaspora of the jewish people after the year 70 there was this mass migration to the city of alexandria and I like to say these days that Alexander was a little bit like your alma mater. It was like Stanford. It was like this pinnacle <laughs> of scientific wisdom and mm-hmm. philosophical inquiry. And, and you had people mm-hmm. from different faiths that were coexisting. But during the calamitous fourth century, um, this was no longer acceptable. And science was uh, was no longer something that was valued. And there was this extreme reactionary reactionary. Uh, we, we can look to Iran. Uh, in the past decades, we can look to our own country, where suddenly science and faith are seen to be at odds. And there was this radical political swing. And that's intimately connected to what we're going to be talking about with uh, why did the Gospel of Mary disappear. But essentially, the Nagmadi Library, most scholars believe, um, were the books that were hidden from this large Christian monastery, and hidden because they didn't want to destroy part of their wisdom text collection. And so they hid them, and they were safely preserved then until 1945. And Hmm. it's only been during our lifetime that we are able to see now, for the first time, texts that are probably far closer to early Christian teachings than what we've inherited. Because mm-hmm. what we've inherited, particularly if we're reading in English, is we're reading English translations that arose during the 16th century of Latin translations, of Greek texts, of words that were spoken by Yeshua, Jesus, in Hebrew or Aramaic. So it's a little bit like telephone. And you look right. at the history of how things were changed and it's a horror, especially for women, what gets changed. <laughs> so if mm-hmm. I could just say one thing mm-hmm. about translations, because I'm so passionate about this. Um, that Please. you know, When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, the word in Hebrew for Holy Spirit would have been ruah. And that word is gendered feminine. Mm-hmm. In Aramaic, the word for Holy Spirit is also gendered feminine. When the Bible gets written down in Greek, it becomes gender neutral. So pneuma is a neutral term. But when it gets translated into Latin, it becomes spiritus, which is masculine. So if you think about that progression that Jesus speaking about Holy Spirit, whenever people say a creed, they should refer to Holy Spirit as she. Wow. And that gets a gender change over the centuries. And so that's just one thing about that shifts when you do translations with language. And another is like the very word sin, which was originally an archery term that means to miss the mark. And it just feels Mm. so different, I think. Just take that on. Mm. What does it mean to say, oh, I missed the mark today versus forgive me for I have sinned you know it's it's got such a different nuance and meaning and i think that those those things are really important to look at so back to Nag Hammadi, yes. the fact that we don't have all these redactions and translations and copying errors that happen between the first copy and the advent of the printing press we we know that there were so many changes over the centuries it means that it's actually closer to the original and perhaps the original teachings than what we have, for example, with the canonical texts where I think, for example, one of the canonical gospels, the, the earliest surviving version that we have of this is like 12th century. So if you think mm. about that, it's profound. It's profound. No, It is
0: profound. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, coupled with the fact that, yes, this is, there was a, a period of time where, this was all, this was oral tradition anyway and so the the game of telephone mm-hmm. happens even if it had stayed in one language with that variable being removed but then when you add Great. all of the different translations and then like you said the the lenses that these men saw through which were patriarchal lenses in deciding yeah. how to interpret the the you know the text that they were reading especially as they take it from one language to another and i just think i as you said that and And I had heard that before that Holy Spirit used to be uh, considered feminine. And I thought, how would that have changed my life and my concept of myself and how I fit in the world if I had grown up believing that the Holy Spirit were feminine? And it and what you're saying is that it seems that that is the original way it was actually spoken. That is the and original. Intended.
1: And there's actually yeah. a movement among some um, some churches now to reclaim that. And I remember the first time I was in an Episcopal church, and a deep bow here to the Reverend Daniel Green, because I remember when he was he stood up and he recited the Nicene Creed, and he used she for Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit. And there was like this audible gasp in the congregation. (laughs) What did he say? And and just that one little S can make a world of difference. It sure does. It sure does. You know, I have to
0: throw in here too, the faith uh, tradition of my family is Mormonism. Actually, I don't know if you knew Mm -hmm. that, but- um, I didn't. know. yeah, I, I come from Mormonism, and my sister just the other day was reading a book that I'll recommend for any listeners who are Mormon. Um, Terrell and Fiona Givens just wrote—they're Mormon scholars, they do beautiful and really important intellectual work in the Mormon space, and they just published a book called All Things New— And, Mm. um, my sister was reading it and it dovetails so perfectly with the gospel of Mary Magdalene. Hmm. Um, I, she, she and I were sitting next to each other and she had her book and I had mine and I looked over her shoulder and (laughs) said, like, we're reading the same thing, but from different angles, (laughs) um, (laughs) but re-examining these early texts and some distortions, um, that happened early on that took Christianity in a very different direction, then, then it seems a different direction than Jesus intended it to go
1: um, well I would certainly argue that and I would say it definitely took it in a different direction that it, it had evolved in in the first few centuries mm mm-hmm. okay oh, yeah interesting that well, you know that women we- had this amazing place uh, un- of pretty much unprecedented unprecedented egalitarianism in the first century of Christianity. and that's one of the reasons why it spread so quickly is because it, it was really a women's religion that empowered women and women's experience mm. and the idea of a home church and worshiping in the home and um, it was incredibly welcoming to women. and then hmm. things changed when it became mm-hmm. romanized.
0: Yes. So did you, I wondered if you had any, anything else that you wanted to say about um, that process, because the, I I did a little bit of um, preparation before our episode. I watched um, on the, the, the teaching company. It used to be called the teaching company. Now I think it's Mm -hmm. called the great courses. And I bought a course Mm -hmm. on the Nag Hammadi texts and on the Gnostics. So when I say the word Gnostics for for listeners, it's G-N-O-S-T-I-C. And it seems to me you can tell me if I'm understanding this correctly that there was um you know there were lots of different factions and lots of different kind of branches of 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 Christianity and that there were the Gnostics who had um and and the Nag Hammadi texts were an, in the Gnostic tradition correct and the, the the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and then you had this different more orthodox um. More patriarchal body that eventually won out in the in the um, as they were creating what would be the official church doctrine. Is that an oversimplification, or
1: you have some of it what just right? Say? And then I want to put, I want to add a little nuance to it. Yeah, um, please. So uh, one of the things that were that scholars are realizing more and more is that to lump it into two categories and to say there were the Orthodox and the Gnostics is very problematic for two reasons. One of which is there wasn't a defined orthodoxy until the fourth century. There was mm-hmm. no one mm-hmm. thing. There, were, I love uh, scholar Elaine Pagels, who I just, I, I love her work so much. And she wrote the foundational book called The Gnostic Gospels that I'd encourage everybody to read. And she uses this phrase that, early christianity was a riot of pluralism mm. and just today as if we, if we were to say the word christian today we would understand that catholics and mormons and presbyterians and episcopalians and jehovah's witnesses and quakers all consider themselves christians but they differ pretty radically in their practices and even their beliefs about things, but they all are Christian. And she makes the point that it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century where there was as much religious diversity within Christianity as there was in the hmm. first few centuries. Hmm. Interesting. So I want you to really take that in. So mm-hmm. the problem with that right away is there was no people who were the orthodox there was intense disputes i mean you look at you know they're there in the new te- in the new testament for anybody to see for example james jesus's own brother and paul and peter they're all in contention with one another there nobody's in agreement they all have different views so you can't say that one person had one viewpoint and everybody was adhering to that except for this small minority because that just simply wasn't the case yet it was only mm-hmm. when the, the teachings of peter and paul allied themselves with Roman imperial power, that you begin to have the sense of what is orthodoxy because it's instituted by a political power, namely the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. But the Mm -hmm. other problem with calling a group Gnostics is that it implies that they all believe the same thing and they didn't. Um, Mm. Where that word is useful and it's only vaguely useful is that the word Gnostic comes from Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. And that Greek word means wisdom or inner knowing. So the one thing that you can say is true is that about these texts and about the texts that we find in Nag Hammadi and about the multiple different traditions um, that have been labeled as Gnostic. Like there's a Sethian tradition, there's a Valentinian tradition, there's a Magdalenian tradition. One thing that you can say is that the emphasis is not on what you adhere to with a belief, a creed, but more with what you do as a practice and a process of inner awakening. So if you think about that, then it becomes kind of useful. But I still shy away from the word Gnostic or use it with care. So there is, there does emerge after the fourth century an emphasis on one form of Christianity that's about rules and authority and patriarchy and adhering to a particular kind of creed. There begin to be the, in the fourth century these councils that vote on what we're all going to say and what we're going to believe. And if you subscribe to that, you're in. And if you don't, then you're in danger of heresy. Versus Mm -hmm. the groups, the multiple, multiple, multiple groups of people who say, here are the wisdom teachings of Yeshua. I like to use, you know, the, f- the form of his name that would have been spoken. So here's the teachings of Yeshua. Mm-hmm. And now here are the processes. Here are the prayers he taught, for example. Here's the Lord's Prayer. Take it on as a practice. Um and even that is problematic because if you go to the Aramaic, the very word aboom that we translate as our father has so many different meanings. It can mean father, mother, or birther of the universe or oh thou. But take on these practices and the, the, the idea is to awaken that word, you know, Jesus is always talking about, you know, those who have eyes to see, those who have ears to hear, to mm. wake up, to pay attention, that great phrase, Vocket Auf, you know, from Box German chorale, you know, to wake up. And that would be the emphasis on these other communities that developed and that flourished around practices of awakening rather than doctrines of belief. And and I think where that becomes really important is some people say, well, all Gnostics believed in, like I've heard some ridiculous things about like, well, the Gnostics has like hatred of the body and they believed in this power called Seth and the Sethian doctrine. And if you look at something like the Gospel of Thomas, which is my favorite of the so-called Gnostic texts, what it is, is it's a collection mm-hmm. of the sayings of Jesus, maybe about 70% of which we find parallels to in the canonical texts. So there's, there's no mm. belief here. It's a series of sayings that are more like the koans of Jesus. Or I, I think Bart Ehrman might have even described it. Um, he's, he's one of the biblical scholars who's done some good historical work, and he describes it as like the class notes of a star student you know, who's taking down what the master says.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going to really quickly read that one um, passage of the Gospel of Thomas because it's my favorite. It's our favorite. Um,
1: <laughs> when we read the, yeah. We read,
0: yeah. Oh, it's so good. And it reminded it's me so of that, that quote by Martha Graham. Can I read that real quick? Oh, please it do. Says, uh, yes, it's the verse in the Gospel of Thomas, which says, if you bring forth what is within you, what it what you bring forth will save you if you do not bring forth what is within you what you do not bring forth will destroy you and i i encountered that that passage for the first time in this class on um, the sacred feminine that I took as part of my grad studies a few years ago and Um, At the time, I had a quote on my wall for my kids to pass by and hopefully read it and take it in by Martha Graham, the great dancer and choreographer. And she said, Mm -hmm. there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, It will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. That's so powerful to me and and seems uh, yes, very at odds with... Um, that other model of kind of hierarchical we will determine what you may believe and what you may do, and this is sin, and we'll define everything for you and and tell you the right way to live, versus what's within you? What is your deep way of knowing? What is yours to express? What is yours to contribute in the world? It just seems like a very different um
1: paradigm.
2: Um,
1: oh, it's such we... a different paradigm. Yeah, such a different (laughs) paradigm. You know, part of this is the reason that, you know, Carl Jung describes these so-called Gnostics as being the world's first depth psychologists.
2: Mm. Because
1: he really believed that what they were exploring and writing about and practicing towards was this idea that there is this deep wisdom inside of us. And in that wisdom, um, when we bring that forth, then that creates healing and beauty in the world and if we mm. don't then it can turn dark and it can become you know what Jung calls the shadow and i think that's exactly mm. what happened in the 4th century to be honest because the model that developed and was eventually embraced that um you know that this this huge question about is the original nature of the human being something that was created out of grace and love and is beautiful or is it something that is so deeply corrupted and evil that there is no redemption possible in the world unless a perfect being, Jesus, is tortured and dies for our sins? And those are two very, mm. you know, very different things. Is, is, you know, is the human baby when it's born, is it essentially a blessed being that needs to grow towards its good essence and be schooled so that it will embrace its goodness? or is it essentially evil and unfortunately after the fourth century with the adoption of the doctrine of of saint augustine and original sin so much of what evolved in patriarchal religion was this sense of radical distrust of everything that was in the human being and that there was a scapegoating, particularly of the of the feminine, and and this doctrine that didn't exist before. Then it didn't exist in in when Jesus was teaching. You know, G- Judaism doesn't have a doctrine of original sin and damnation. That wouldn't have been part of his culture. But um, but hmm. what is this? And so. So there are there were communities that said, you know, that define Jesus as the I love the early Christian I love the early Christian definition of Jesus as the great healer, the physician of our soul that comes mm. and and heals mm. us from the things that we are ailing from. But that's that's different than having to um, to say that the human being has no goodness inside it inherently.
2: And Mm -hmm. that that Mm
1: -hmm. has been, that that image of the imago dei, uh, the image of God, um, that that has been so twisted and corrupted because of, you know, of eating an apple in Eden, that, that there is no possibility of goodness. And that that really gets tied mm. into, but that would probably be a, a six month course <laughs> about Adam yeah, and Eve sure. and apple and the doctrines of all of that. But 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 I, what I will turn to because it'll turn to uh, turn us to the teachings of in the Gospel of Mary is that there's this idea that the root of the human being, the seed, um, the seed pattern, is originally good. And that mm-hmm. just like, you know, if you think of in the Gospel of John, the metaphor of Jesus coming is the gardener, right? It is it is the return to the garden. And if you think of the horticultural analogy of you can have a good seed, but it can become unhealthy because it's blocked from the light or it didn't get enough nutrients or, or you know, weather has come that has wounded it and broken the tree branches and And I love this metaphor of Jesus as the gardener, or Jesus as the physician, or Jesus as the doctor who comes to tend and nourish us. So one of the central teachings in the Gospel of Mary is that Jesus is referred to as the good with a capital G. And it is, this is why the good has come into your midst to reunite you with your roots. And I love mm-hmm. that because the root of the word religion is religari in Latin, and it means to religament, to put back together what has been out of joint or dismembered to straighten and align and make he- he- healthy and whole and healed. And that, you know, that's something, the word original word credo also didn't mean I think, but I give my heart to. And the <gasps> idea of giving really? my heart to, yeah, from the French, you know, it's related etymologically to the word core for heart, credo and core mm. have this connection. So I give my heart to the story that there is an a seed pattern of goodness that needs to be healed and nurtured. And the teachings that derive from this Gospel of Mary that were perpetuated throughout the world in different traditions are to reunite us with the good, to do, to engage in the practices that can return us to the root of goodness, that can heal us and make us whole If you think of holy Mm. and whole and how in English they're connected, I think that's an important thing, a Mm. really important thing to reclaim. Mm, That's powerful.
0: Um, Is there a passage, Kayleen, and I know that you did now get us into the text. You just quoted the Gospel of Mary Magdalene a little bit, and I'm wondering if you could— Read a little bit more um, from a passage that you think is particularly important, and tell us why it's important <laughs> yeah, to you. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I'll, I'll just set the context on this, and and just want to encourage everybody. The text itself is is very slight; it's like seven pages,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: um, the translation. You know, one of the things that I like to do because I, I'm not. A Coptic scholar, I can't read it in Coptic, and I only have a smattering of Greek, not enough to trust. So, what I like to do is I like to put the multiple translations before me of how the words have been translated, and to sit with them all. So, if it's okay with your permission, what I'm going to read is I'm going to read um, what is the surviving second page of this, um, and this is this happens after Peter turns to Mary. Um, Sorry, no, this is the passage in, in which uh, Jesus is uh, teaching um, all of the disciples, and including Mary Magdalene. And he's giving this particular teaching. Um, and most of the translation I'm going to use is from the... Um, the the version that was translated from the Coptic and the Greek into French by Jean-Yves Leloup, and then translated from the French into the English by, by the scholar who has become a friend of mine, Joseph Rao. Um, but I'm going to change one thing because there's one phrase that Karen King translates differently that I absolutely love. Um, so just to let you know what that is, uh, in in the Joseph Rao, Jean-Yves Lelou tra- uh, translation, um, the phrase is translated as the son of man. Mm-hmm. And Karen King translates that same phrase as the child of true humanity. So I'm going to use Ooh. the child of true humanity. But the rest of this is the very poetic rendering of Jean-Yves Lelou and Joseph Rao. Perfect. And, um what I'm going to invite your listeners to listen for is to realize that this is a this this may for some people, particularly those who come from outside of Christianity, might actually feel very Eastern. It might feel kind of mm-hmm. Buddhist in a way, mm-hmm. and um, so that it does two things. It's talking about you know where where are the ways that we get get led astray. Again, that word sin meaning to go astray. How do we get astray? How do we get crooked and not in alignment spiritually? And then the other thing is to notice, notice the emphasis on the trust of the heart within. Okay. So here it goes. This is immediately after, I'm actually going to start it with the previous passage again. This is why the good has come into your midst. It acts together with the elements of your nature so as to reunite it with its roots. Attachment to matter gives rise to passion against nature and thus trouble arises in the whole body. This is why I tell you, be in be in harmony. If you are out of balance, take inspiration from manifestations of your true nature, those who have ears. After saying this, the Blessed One greeted them all, saying, peace be with you. May my peace arise and be fulfilled with within you be vigilant and allow no one to mislead you by saying here it is or there it is for it is within you that the child of true humanity dwells wow so beautiful Isn't that? It's so poetic and that emphasis on the goodness within and turning inward to remember the goodness that is in us and Mm -hmm. to find those things that can bring us back into balance. It's such a different view. It's such a different view. It's like, oh, I'm out of balance. Not I'm Mm -hmm. bad, but I'm out of balance. How do I get back into balance? Mm -hmm. Oh, I turn to the wisdom teachings and the practices that can Mm -hmm. return me to the essence of goodness. Mm -hmm. I think you can hear, I mean, I hope you can feel like, like why Hal Tausig and the Council of Scholars from all these different denominations said, oh my gosh, this is such an important text. You know, Mm -hmm. you could just sit with that one page and dwell on it for months and have it be the subject of sermons and meditations for months. It's so profound.
0: It is. It's so profound and so beautiful. I thought one, one of the, the parts that I loved when you when you read it was um, where it says take inspiration from, well, to back up, if you are out of balance, take inspiration from manifestations of your true nature. And you you talked about, you know, who we are in, in viewing ourselves as whole human beings, that we are yeah. good at our birth. And also one beautiful Gift that um, that my mom did for all for me and for all of my siblings was she made these amazing baby books and wrote mm-hmm. down things we loved and things that we kind of were drawn to as little children and. I have loved throughout my life when I do feel a little bit out of balance to think back. And and I have a record because obviously it's, you know, I wouldn't remember any of that, right? But to get back in touch with who I was when I was little is a powerful way of restoring Balance to yes. think like when I was pure, when I was in my body without being self conscious. Before you were when, wounded. Before <laughs> yeah, I before was wounded.
1: Before you were wounded.
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. We are kind of our most whole selves when we're little, and and mm. the world has the a shining essence. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's that's beautiful. One other thing that I thought, uh, Kayleen, a, a question I have for you is, I mean, when I'm when I'm thinking about the the men who are making the decision to not include this text in the yeah. canon, in the official um, book of scripture that we mm-hmm. ended up all inheriting. I, I am thinking, well, I'm wondering, I guess, do you think that it was deliberate? Because this is a really subversive. It could be seen as very subversive, <laughs> yes. right? Because it gives yes. people their own inner authority, which means they yes. are not going to be able to be subjugated very easily if they think that they have, you know, the son of man or or the child of of true humanity true dwells humanity. within us. Yeah, then we don't need those hierarchical,
1: um, authoritative structures. structures as much, right? That's right. If we are utterly dependent for salvation on having sacraments conferred to us by a priest who's been authorized by a lineage that dates back to peter right we're going to have one sense of things but if we have a sense that no no there is a seed of goodness you know that there is this imago dei there christ dwells within everyone and we need to just connect to that then then it it definitely um, subverts the need for obedience to authority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it opens up to that sense of, w- wait, well, why should I trust this person more than I should trust a cherished friend of my heart to use the Celtic tradition of the Anamkara or trust my own inner knowing? You know, it's mm-hmm. it will lead us to a different place. Mm-hmm.
0: So I... I think that that applies, I mean, obviously to, to everyone, to men and women to, to trust their inner knowing. And that this is, this is, again, these two different paradigms of top down, um, authoritative structures versus, Mm -hmm. you know, trusting your own heart that applies to everyone. Um, equally I feel and then later in the text, um, there are some passages that I feel like are particularly applicable, um, to women and relevant to, I mean, struggles that I've had in my own life. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't want to go there yet. If
1: you have anything else that you wanted to share from that passage, Kayleen, are we missing well, anything? you know, the, the one thing I do want to put in here is because it's part of sort of like the hidden tradition, um, mm-hmm. There's a pretty fascinating book called The History of Christianity, The First 3,000 Years by Jeremy McCulloch, who was a, uh, a, a biblical historian at Oxford University. And one of the things that he points to about Egypt and Egyptian Christianity is that at the same time that Christianity moves from being this very intimate experience of house churches and small communities that are often led in circle groups, for example, um, there were many communities where people would simply draw lots as to who would be the speaker and who would be the preacher and who would administer the sacraments during that particular worship service, you know, because it was really believed that the light of Christ was inside everyone. And um some critics were, you know, were horrified and they're like, ah, they even let women lead these things. You know, that becomes something that's mm. very much part of it. But Jeremy McCullough used this fabulous phrase. He said that there was this silent rebellion that developed in monasticism, particularly in Egypt, that emphasized practices, orthopraxis rather than orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the points is that. Um, this pathway, this pathway that I'll call a pathway of awakening and, and that we, we're going to talk about in the next passage when, when Mary Magdalene has this vision and she encounters a vision in what's called the nous, the N-O-U-S, a Greek word, a little bit hard to translate, but we could, we could kind of translate it as your imagination, but in not in a way of your making it up, but more like a, the um, imaginal realm of Henri Corbin or, um, you know, Jung talking about this a lot as well in active imagination. It's where you kind of connect to a transcendent property, the place where dreams come from. And part of what arises in this is that the awakening of this realm, of awakening of inner vision and inner knowing is very dependent on Inner discipline as well, and cultivating practices. You know, it's it's not enough to show up on Sundays and you know take communion and then have um, some authority figure say, "Okay, you're good for the week." But rather, there was this different tradition out of the monastic practice of every day. How can I tune my heart to the what is good and true and beautiful every day? What are the things I can do so that I can return to that essence of goodness? What are the prayer practices? What are the things I need to pay attention to? What are the teachings of Jesus that will that can lead me and connect me to his healing so that I can awaken, so that I can become healed? And I think that, that that's important because I don't want to give the impression that like, oh, all you have to do is, is um, look to your heart and you're good to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because we can all get Misled. I think we can all look back on Mm -hmm. our lives and have a sense of, like, wow, I thought I was following my heart, but look at the pain and suffering I caused myself and other people. So I really want to put in at this point that the word discernment is really important. And there's a whole tradition about how do you discern and know that your heart is in alignment with the teachings of Jesus. And that's a whole vast topic, but it feels really important, particularly in light of some of the things that we sometimes see in the tragic history of Christianity. And I'll point to one that's far away, so I won't get too contemporary with politics. But if you look at the wars between Catholics and Protestants, both of whom burned each other alive because they thought they were following the true spirit. And I can hardly imagine that Jesus would condone either of those. Mm -hmm. So- just a word That's for discernment right. in there. <laughs> really important.
0: No, I, I really, it's really important, and I, I actually was thinking that as we were, were talking earlier about, you know, the the different family groups doing their their you know circles of of worship mm-hmm. and studying and trying to be, uh, you know, trying to follow the good. But yeah. yeah, I've there's this tension even in my own life, and I think it is human nature that. I do want to trust my heart and yet like mm-hmm. you just said sometimes the human heart is not trustworthy <laughs> and, and we can yeah. think we're right and we can and our passions or our own biases that we don't even realize that's we right. have can lead us in it le- can lead us astray so it's we have to have, I love that you used the word discernment that's something that I talk about a lot too and and having people around us who are wise and comparing lots of different points of view so you know so that we have different people and different texts and different traditions <laughs> holding up mirrors to us saying like, Oh, you might be off here and so that we can right. really be exactly. circumspect
1: and examine our own our Absolutely. own thoughts and feelings. Yeah, and and one of the earliest teachings that goes directly back to Magd- Mary Magdalene is uh, you know something from this Eastern Orthodox saint named John Cassian who wrote these books and discernment was such a big thing for him and he wrote his book on discernment in the cave of Mary Magdalene in La- in mm-hmm. France where she spent the last thirty years of her life he came there after studying for over a decade in Egypt to write about how do we know how do we listen and. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he, he cautions us against is, is he says it's very, very dangerous to, to only trust your heart, that yes, your heart is good, Mm. but you also need to have, you know, to be in community and to have, um, voices of wisdom, to have, you know, the Celtic term Anamkara so that you can mirror and and check it out and say, is it right? And then to test it against scripture and to test it against Mm -hmm. the teachings of Jesus and to test it against a whole bunch of things. And you go, yes, yes, it's true. Um, but it also leads into the next Part which we won't go into great detail, but I just want to for for the listeners here. Um, when Peter turns to Mary and says, "Teach us the things that you know that we don't," because they they are all in sorrow and in doubt, and they turn to her, and um, she says, "You know, do not be in sorrow and doubt, because um, and and he's preparing us to become fully human." And so they ask her for her her secret knowings, the ones that the teachings that he taught only to her. And she recounts this experience in which she had to pass through seven, basically seven, uh, confront seven powers (laughs) and they include things Mm -hmm. like craving and wrath. And she has to face and confront these, these gateways and pass through them. And, um, For me, this is congruent when you have in the biblical tradition of Mary Magdalene being healed by the so-called seven demons. These are Mm. those seven powers. And in the Catholic tradition, particularly how it got uh, passed down through Dante's Divine Comedy, every human soul who's on the journey to paradise, who's destined for being a blessed being, has to climb up this mountain of purgatory where they have to confront and grapple with the seven deadly sins of pride and wrath and envy and once and all of that tradition and once they've done that then they are thoroughly purified and they're ready to be in paradise and I think it's fascinating that the first person who really writes about this is about these these things that we have to confront and overcome is John Cassian. And he writes about them in the cave of Mary Magdalene in France. And the parallels between that and this gospel of Mary for me are just so striking, so amazing. And so to think, what if to become fully human, what if to flower in our fullness, what if to be reunited with our root, we needed to confront the ways that we go astray with pride, with envy, with gluttony, with wrath with all of those things. And when we've done that and we've healed that part of ourselves, then we're ready to go to the next level, the next ladder of spirit, the next rung on the ladder of spiritual development. And when we've purified ourselves, when we've when we've gone through all of that, then we're fully healed. And that's why I love the introduction of the Gospel of Mary, where it says, you know, it points to the East and says, well, in the chakra system, like in Buddhism, you know, if you had each of those seven gateways, there's a demon. And if you expel the demon, that gateway opens up. So someone who's had all seven of them purified and opened is a fully enlightened being, is a bodhisattva. And that Mm. gives us, I think, a much more accurate insight into Mary Magdalene. Oh.
0: I was going to ask you actually. I thought we're not going to have time for it, but then you said it anyway. Hooray. I was going to say <laughs> is that related to the chakras because that <laughs> sure sounds familiar. So yes, uh-huh. it seems like there's there's some universal cosmic truth that's being manifested in all, you know, in religions all over the world. And and but it, it, it just is tragic to me that it was left out of the scriptures that I grew up with. I could have so benefited from that. That oh, I'm benefiting we from have it all. now. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think that probably will lead us into our last piece the, the end piece about Peter's response to this vision. Did you want to read that part? I would
0: because this was probably there were so many um passages and 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 you're right it is a very short text but it's so rich. Um there were so many things that struck me but if I could only share um part A and part B from this one passage then I think that's what I'd like to to end on. So Great. As you said, you, you set it up perfectly. This is, this is a passage where the, the disciples are all talking. Um, my understanding is that this is after Christ had, um, been resurrected and had ascended. So he was gone (laughs) and the, and and there are, you know, echoes of this. There are other episodes in the, in the new Testament where you have this same thing where the disciples are afraid and, and, you know, they're afraid they're going to be killed just as Jesus was. So I'll, I'll, uh, start the passage here. It says, quote, the disciples were in sorrow, shedding many tears and saying, how are we to go among the unbelievers and announce the gospel of the kingdom of the son of man? They did not spare his life. So why should they spare ours? Then Mary arose, embraced them all and began to speak to her brothers. Do not remain in sorrow and doubt for his grace will guide you and comfort you. Instead, let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us for this. He is calling upon us to become fully human, Anthropos. Thus Mary turned their hearts toward the good, and they began to discuss the meaning of the teacher's words. So I'll pause there really quickly. I just, um, I, I really paused there when I read it and thought, how it would have impacted me as a little girl and a young woman mm-hmm. to have a passage in my holy text where um a woman arose, embraced the men. and I love the way that she is a leader, but this is a passage where a woman is a leader. and mm-hmm. I didn't see that growing up. She's a leader not just in in my faith tradition women are allowed to be leaders of other women and of children but not ever of men. And mm-hmm. in this passage she stands up. They're they're you know having very normal human emotions of fear and sorrow and so does she. It's not to say that she doesn't but in this moment she arises and and comforts them and embraces them and calls them brothers. There's so much love in her leadership. So much and love. She, So much love. This isn't, you know, this isn't just a a reversal of now she's going to, you know, um, lead them authoritatively. No, it's just with love. But she gives them the pep talk they need. Um, She reminds Mm -hmm. them that they have the power inside of them. And so to see that as an exemplar of what a a role that a woman could be in, in a spiritual Mm -hmm. um, context was so powerful to me. Um, Yeah. What did you think and of so that, Julian? so
1: consonant. Kaylee-Ann. Let me just underscore: it's <laughs> yes. so consonant with what we have in the canonical text where Mary, you know, Peter has denied Jesus three times, but Mary is there present at the foot of the cross, able to be with him in his suffering and then courageously going to the tomb to anoint his body and so trusted by him to become her original title, the apostle to the apostles, the maestra Mm -hmm. apostolorum, the teacher of the apostles. It's, It's such a congruent vision. They are not at uh, it's, it's it's actually, it just mm-hmm. feels like, to me, the next chapter after Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And then she goes here, mm-hmm. you know. It's like, this is the sequence.
0: Yes, yes. It, but the, the, that part was left out. It just, it, yep. there's a a hole there, like a hole in the heart of all women, I think, that maybe you don't mm-hmm. even realize is there until reading this passage. I yeah. It's just real actually really emotional for me to to yeah.
1: have I've that had people burst image. into tears when they hear really? that because yeah. yeah, it is so powerful.
0: It's so powerful. Okay. So the next part is part B, I I guess, of my um what I wanted to share. So so what happens in between is then that what you just shared, Kayleen, which is where they say, so, you know, you were really, really important to the teacher and he loved you more than all other women. Um, is there something that he shared with you maybe that we don't know? And so she shares that beautiful vision of the seven levels and um, mm-hmm. this this divine revelation that she's had. And so at Peter's invitation, she shares the vision that she (laughs) had, right? And Mm -hmm. then here's how the apostles react. Quote, having said all this, so meaning after she shared this vision with them, Mary became silent, for it was in silence that the teacher spoke to her. Then Andrew began to speak, and he said to his brothers, tell me, what do you think of these things she has been telling us? As for me, I do not believe that the teacher would speak like this. These ideas are too different from those we have known. And Peter added, How is it possible that the teacher talked in this manner with a woman, about secrets of which we ourselves are ignorant? Must we change our customs and listen to this woman? Did he really choose her and prefer her to us? And I'll pause there. I'm going to read just a a touch more, but just to pause there, that just feels so familiar to me. I've (laughs) literally had men in positions of authority say to me like, well, I've never heard that before. So that can't be true. And of course, women do this too. That's, it's just, it's it's not a great practice for anybody to do, but I feel like it's different because women are not in a position of authority to create law or policy or make decisions that impact Mm. other people. And so a man disregarding a woman has an, has the ability to affect that woman's life in a way that a woman disregarding a man does not. So the power Mm. differential is huge, even though, you know, it's not great for anybody to just stand up and say like, well, I've never heard that before. So that can't be true. Mm -hmm. There is a, a a level of power there for a man to disregard a woman that is more devastating to, you know, that woman's life. Um,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and then also present in this passage is where, where Andrew says, these ideas are too different. And I just mm-hmm. thought, yeah, that's exactly like people don't like change. And if P- Peter says, must we change our customs? And clearly mm-hmm. one of those customs is, you know, what Paul was writing about that, that from the, really from the Hebrew and Greek tradition that women are inferior, that men should not be speaking to and listening to women, women. And we know that Jesus worked hard to push back against those gender norms, but those were really absolutely. entrenched in these men, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. In particular, Peter and Andrew, who were two you know, illiterate fishermen. And then that gets Mm. us into a whole other thing, but they culturally they came from what we would call, you know, a far more conservative element than some of the Mm. other disciples. So we see this and, and, you know, I, I, I just have to say, you know, that the whole thing about Peter is Peter's like the most problematic disciple, if you just stay in <laughs> the Bible himself, as, I, as we true. talked about, you know, he denies Jesus three times. But there are other times where Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. And he says mm-hmm. to him, have I been with you all this time and you still don't get it? You know, he expresses Mm. exasperation with Peter several times, and we're going to see that echoed in this next passage of what you're reading in terms of how one of the other disciples responds to Peter.
0: Yep. Yes. So I'll continue with that. So Peter and Andrew stand up and discount what Mary has just said. And this was a really moving part to me too, because it says, quote, Then Mary wept and answered him, My brother Peter. What can you be thinking? Do you believe that this is just my own imagination that I invented this vision, or do you believe that I would lie about our teacher? And at the end of that quote, and right there, I just have to interject how much it meant to me to see myself reflected in this story mm-hmm. and just have the empathy of how that mm-hmm. feels to be a woman. And I'm sure this isn't the first time that this has happened to her. So I, I get the sense of like the fact that she just cried. And thinking of my own tears as I've had conversations with m- beloved men, even, right? Because she says, My brother, mm-hmm. Peter. Like this is someone she knows intimately, and just that frustration of like, really? You're not gonna <laughs> take me seriously. And I've just felt like You're not gonna that's believe so- me. <gasps> right. Because yeah. I'm a woman. And mm-hmm. that she's she just has that, you know, kind of thrown in her face again, like, oh, after all of this, even you still see me as less than you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And just that frustration that she just cries. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's actually really validating for me to read that, that she, that, you know, I could just so relate to that response yeah. from her. And then yeah. this, do, would you like to say something?
1: Sorry, Kayleen. Just, you know, I want to also remind people that there's such a stigma about tears. Yeah. And I want to remind us that Jesus didn't have that stigma. Mm-hmm. That actually in the canonical text, when he encounters Mary and Martha and at the tomb of Lazarus, when he sees their tears, we have the shortest line in the Bible, Jesus wept.
2: Mm-hmm. That
1: Jesus weeps out of empathy and compassion and love. And so... Mm-hmm this is something you know in the monastic tradition it's actually called the charisma charism, at uh, the gift of tears and it's oh. it's a sign of purity of heart
0: oh how and, beautiful
1: yeah and so i think it's imp- important to link that like to look again at w- who is jesus and what did he do and one of the things that he did is he also wept and mm-hmm. he also expressed frustration when people didn't get it and didn't understand mm-hmm
0: and that's so in line again with that word anthropos to be fully yes. human yes. means to embrace all of our you know our human experiences and and things that are traditionally thought of as being masculine and things parts of ourselves that are traditionally thought of as being feminine for absolutely may, for all people to embrace all, all those people. beautiful parts of ourselves
1: including yes. crying <laughs> yes including <laughs> yes. Having deep emotional experiences. So I just so love, are you gonna, do you wanna read uh, what Levi says? Cause I just I just love this part. (laughs) Yes, I I was planning to
0: include, me too. Yes, yes, I'll I'll read it. And then I wanna hear what you think about it. So after this, so Mary is is frustrated and um, feeling so sad about what's happened. And it says, quote, at this, Levi spoke up, Peter, you have always been hot tempered. And now we see you repudiating a woman just as our adversaries do. Yet if the teacher held her worthy, who are you to reject her? Surely the teacher knew her very well, for he loved her more than us. Therefore, let us atone and become fully human, Anthropos, so that the teacher can take root in us. Let us grow as he demanded of us, and walk forth to spread the gospel without trying to lay down any rules and laws other than those he witnessed. Um, and and for me, I just w- wanted to applaud. And um, <laughs> yes, and I and I also just have to throw in I, again personally as as many experiences of frustration of not being listened to and and being talked down to and and demeaned sometimes by men. I also have had so many beautiful experiences of Mm -hmm. men who -hmm. who do listen and do and stand up for me and stand up for women and are champions of women. And I just so am so grateful for Levi's example, and that that's yes.
1: included in this text as well. That's one of the things I thought. What do you think, Kayleen? Oh, absolutely. I believe it and so, completely. And th- that is absolutely one thing that we want to reclaim here. It's not an either or. It's not mm-hmm. uh, black and white male, female. This fully human it is all of it. It is this journey of being anthropos. And, you know, I was so moved at one of the places that I went to in France and I saw this symbol and I, I was so intrigued by it. And I explored it and it goes back to, to very early in, in Christianity within France. And it is, imagine if you will, uh, one triangle pointing upwards to the sky interlocked with another triangle pointing down to the earth. And so it's these two triangles interlocked together, which is what we have in the Jewish Star of David or the Seal of Mm -hmm. Solomon. But inside is a six-petaled flower. And Mm -hmm. that six-petaled flower, I have been thrilled to discover. Um, It's also called the Flower of Life. And it was a symbol that was on uh, the symbol that was the part of the earliest Christian tradition to identify Christians. You know, it wasn't the crucifix until the year 1000 was the dominant image. But this 6 petal mm. flower, because it was this idea that, and when it's enclosed with the Star of David, it's like when we unite the masculine and the feminine within each one of us and in our world, that is what will lead to our fullest flowering. Mm-hmm. and so i've just been thrilled to find out that that six-petaled flower was the symbol that has been associated with the teachings of mary magdalene from the very beginning and just a few years ago they were doing excavations in magdala at a, a franciscan uh, a group of franciscans bought this property to turn it into a retreat center and they've uncovered the earliest first century synagogue and it's in the town of magdala and what is on that altar is the six-petaled flower
0: oh you're kidding
1: that's amazing and it's called the magdalen stone you can look it up online Mm. the magdalen stone the magdalen altar And so if you hold that, that yes, it is the masculine and the feminine together will lead to our world's flowering, the masculine and the feminine within each one of us. You know, Jesus had so much of what we might call the feminine aspect, love, compassion, tenderness, all of those qualities united beautifully with masculine, so-called masculine qualities of strength and power and you put these together mm-hmm. and you think that he taught his his first his his first witness you know Mary Magdalene steps into those shoes to become fully human and now she calls forth all of us to become fully human by connecting to the goodness that is in us and remembering our roots and opening to our fullness and i think that is such an important message for our times for men and for women for everyone you know, to to use the phrase that Paul uses, you know, neither Greek nor Jew, neither male nor female, but to call us into our full humanity. Mm.
0: Well that was just a beautiful way to wrap up this conversation, Kayleen. Um I've learned so much from you and <sighs> I'm so, so grateful that uh you agreed to be my reading partner today. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure. I, I love having these kinds of conversations and I hope our, our listeners are excited to go and go deeper and to read the Gospel of Mary and maybe join me on one of the virtual pilgrimages or the 22 Days of Mary Magdalene. And, and it's been such a joy, Amy. Thank you for all the work you're doing to raise consciousness and awareness in the world and, and to restore the image of goodness and create community. Oh, well, thank
0: you. I would thank you for the same thing. I've already benefited so much. And yes, I would definitely encourage listeners to check out all of the amazing offerings on kayleenasbo.com and look at Mythica Foundation. And um, and yes, definitely read this text. It's it's short, but it's powerful. And we didn't even get to some of the most, you know, s- some other really, really powerful parts of this this incredible essential text. So um, really quickly too, Kayleen, you've uh, provided some beautiful music for our outro. So um, normally we just have a little piano piece that we play at the beginning and the end, but um, today we have something really special. So before I introduce our next text that we're going to be reading for next week, could you just tell us a little bit more (laughs) about what we're going to hear at the end of this episode?
1: Yes, absolutely. This is a song composed by my dear friend, Catherine Braslavsky, who lives in France, and she's actually the wife of the English translator of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And um, it is based on an Aramaic text from the first century. So Aramaic, again, the language that Jesus spoke. And I think the words really speak to some of these elements that we've been talking about. So roughly translated, it's Oh, beautiful tree of our heart's longing, the Lord has planted you and you have grown by the blessed waters. Your leaves heal and your fruit gives life and we take shelter in your shade and the Holy Spirit rests in your branches like the dove in ancient olive trees. And as we listen to this, then just realize that the dove, again, Holy Spirit, she in Aramaic, that Mm. the Holy Spirit was often signified and still is by a dove. And a dove is one of the, the symbols that's been associated with Mary Magdalene from the very beginning. So wherever you are listening, may peace flower in your own heart. May peace arise within you and may you return again and again and again to the roots of goodness and beauty that is your essence. Thank you so much.
0: Mm, thank you, Kayleen. Well, that is just absolutely beautiful, and I think a perfect way for us to to close the conversation, Kayleen. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will pick up where we left off in the 19th century with Charlotte Perkins Gilman's 1892 novella, The Yellow Wallpaper. I read this book as a freshman in college, and wow, is it different reading it now. It's an amazing, um, kind of like a short story. It's really short and super quick to read. It's also on Audible if you want to listen to it. And it's a landmark work of literature because it's one of the first examples of a female narrator telling the story from inside her own head it talks about depression it talks about medical paternalism and it really vividly depicts all kinds of 19th century social norms that still have echoes today so the story is really worth reading or rereading again if you've already read it but as always of course even if you didn't even if you don't read it we'll share why it's important in our discussion so join us next time for Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper on Breaking Down Patriarchy. And now we'll end this episode with this beautiful work, Ilono, by Catherine Bruslavsky. Um, and just one more note, as you listen, remember that Mary Magdalene, whom Christians will remember especially during the upcoming Easter season, um, so this is an especially timely episode and a beautiful time for for people of the Christian faith to listen to this music. Remember that Mary Magdalene was from Israel. She wasn't European. And this text, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that we read and discussed today, was written by Egyptian Christians. And you'll hear that in this gorgeous piece of music.